You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. All right, welcome to IntelligentTalk.com. We're very pleased to have Professor Tom Lodge of the University of Limerick. He's written several very interesting books I wanted to discuss with him today. Um, he he's, uh, wrote a book on Nelson Mandela and also on the Sharpeville Massacre. Uh, Professor Lodge, thank you for coming on the program today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. So, um, you know, earlier we had um, the chief of staff for President DeClerc on, and so I also wanted to hear sort of the, not the other side of the of the aisle, so to speak, but just to get a different perspective on events in South Africa. And you're obviously a, a biographer of Nelson Mandela. I wanted to start with the Sharpeville Massacre, because to me, and then sort of segue into Melit Mandela, because that occurred shortly before he was arrested. Um, just if I could ask, how did you get interested in South Africa and, and this area of study? And how did you um, get into that, please? It's a long story. Uh, I grew up um, in West Africa. My, my, my parents worked in West Africa. Uh, we, we lived in Nigeria when I was a kid. And I remember very clearly uh, one day we were at the local supermarket. We lived in a town called Kano, and um, we were g- getting the normal weekly shopping. Um, and uh, I, I was eight at the time. And I picked up a can of peaches and put them into the supermarket trolley. And my mother said, no, we can't have those peaches any longer. Uh, and I said, why? And she said, because they're South African peaches. Uh, and the South Africans are, are bad people. They, they've just shot a whole lot of uh, people in Sharpeville. And we mustn't buy any more South African food. Uh, most of the tins, most of the canned food in a Nigerian supermarket at that, at that time did indeed come from South Africa. So that was a kind of early introduction, if you like, to to the South African conflict. But as a consequence of living in West Africa, uh, I, I was interested in Africa. Later on, when I went to secondary school and then later to university, uh, I got interested in African history. And at the time that I was a student, the most exciting part of Africa seemed to be Southern Africa. And I went out to do my dissertation research as a PhD student in South Africa in the early 70s. And my dissertation was, in fact, about the events leading up to the Sharpeville Massacre. Uh, and I was interested in them for lots of reasons. I think that childhood memory may have had something to do with it. But also because um, the, the, the movement, the organization that had precipitated the massacre, that had organized the protests in front of the police station that the police fired into, was not in fact the mainstream nationalist organization, the one that Nelson Mandela headed, the African National Congress, but rather a breakaway organization, the Pan-Africanists, uh, which was much more like a kind of black power movement within the more broad, if you like, movement for civil rights in South Africa. And nobody had written about it very much up until that stage. Um, and so I, I thought, well, there's a book to be written about the Pan-Africanist Congress and the Sharpeville Massacre. And I started looking at it. But in those days, of course, the whole story couldn't be told because um, this was still a very repressive country. And many of the people that later would be willing to speak to me couldn't speak to me or wouldn't speak to me or were reluctant to speak to me 
too frightened to speak to me then. Well, as you said, Professor Sharp, exactly right. It was led by the Pan-African Congress, not the more famous AMC, the African National Congress, which, of course, Nelson Mandela is in, is in power today. And Nelson Mandela was basically was part of and was head of. The Sharpeville Massacre occurred on 21 March 1960, approximately 69 deaths, several hundred injuries. It was kind of the first, I guess you could say, major crack in the regime. It led to um, sort of the apartheid movement. I think they helped to expel them from the Commonwealth, sanctions, and it was sort of the beginning, I don't know if we say of the end, but really of people taking notice of what occurred. As you said, you as a child were told about it from your mother. Um, and, and your book basically paints an interesting picture. It started off as a protest against basically the past laws, and the past laws were something that were used to control the black population. They couldn't really move to different parts of the country. Is that right? That's right. They were like, like a system of internal passports, and they were um, in, intended to channel black labor to where it was most needed and to keep it out of the cities when it was not needed. And so you had this very rigorous system of, of checks and controls and restrictions on the ability of most people in South Africa to move from one place to another. It wasn't easy, for example, for black people to move from one town to another. They couldn't choose where they would live. And there were certain groups of people who had, if you like, rights of permanent urban residence, but there were other people that did not. And the past laws became, during the 1950s, increasingly well organized and indeed increasingly unpleasant and increasingly enforced by rough police methods, hence the protest against them. Okay. Um, and you sort, of, you sort of look at this as sort of a microcosm of how the government maintained control. I think you wrote there were about 200 white police officers and about 200 black police officers enforcing um, the rule of the South African white government. Is that, is that right? It was pretty much half and half? With, with no, that was the case at Sharpville, yes. Um, I, I mean, the, 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 the police was uh, very substantially, in fact, recruited from uh, black South Africans. They usually... Uh, from people that were not from the cities in which they were operational. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter was that jobs, paid work, regular, secure jobs were hard to come by, and working for the police was a relatively well-paid and comfortable profession for, 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 for many black South Africans. Indeed, the current president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, his father was a policeman in the 1960s. Interesting. I think you wrote that the blacks... Police officers were not given guns; they were given basically clubs, and the white police officers were given the the, the arms. Is that right? Uh, yes, um, the, the the black policemen were perfectly happy to use their clubs, um, and they did use them um, at Sharpeville, and subsequently um, beat people up that were wounded on the ground. So, Professor Lush, um, obviously, this massacre occurs. Sixty-nine people died, several hundred wounded. Um, is that right that the ramifications of this were basically people took notice of the regime and it was kind of the father of the sanctioned movement? Is that, would that be fair to say? Yes, well, it was the trigger, if you like, of uh, an international movement forming itself and directing itself against apartheid. Uh, it's, it's worth uh, explaining why, because this wasn't the first massacre that's happened in South Africa. It wasn't the first time that the police are shot into crowds. Uh, indeed, a white mine workers' rebellion was put down with comparable ferocity uh, in 1922, though those miners were armed and they, they, it was an armed rebellion against the state. So, so this was a fairly habitual thing. But the thing that made this different was that there were photographers, there were journalists, there, there were television cameras that appeared on the scene only a few minutes after the police had um, started trying to clear up. Uh, and so this massacre was visually projected around the world. And that was the first time that had happened. 
um, it, it was, you know, really with the advent of photojournalism that apartheid became a global issue in a way that it had not up until then. And one little aside, you mentioned in the book how actually Mississippi, the state of Mississippi, actually praised what occurred. And I think that says a lot about the state of U.S. race relations at the time, that Mississippi would actually praise the massacre. Well, there it is. Um, uh, we, uh, those were, one hopes, different times. Yes. Let me just segue now, if I could, into um, Mandela. He's born in um, 1918 in the Trans Sky. He's a royal trial background, uh, royal background at birth. Um, is that right? I mean, could you explain basically? Yes. You... Um, one always has to be a bit careful when, when, when one's writing about or thinking about or reading about Mandela and his origins, because he rather pointed up or exaggerated the extent to which he came from a, a royal family. He did, in the sense that he, he was a kinsfolk um, of, 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 of royalty. But, but in fact, his father was a headman. Uh, um, a, an official within the hierarchy of officials to which power and authority were delegated by the colonial regime. Uh, but but his, his father was a councillor of the king. But there were many such councillors. It, it wasn't as if you know, Mandela was the prince regent or anything like that. Okay. Um, but his father was quite an important man, and um, he had a fairly important position. And um, in fact, we know rather more about his father now than Mandela actually tells us in his books, or that I was able to find out 10 years ago when I was writing that biography. Um, and he did grow up um, in a royal court, um, learning, if you like, about the protocols uh, that surrounded the aristocracy, which helps to explain his sort of sense of himself, his certainty, his assurance, the way that he dealt with white South Africans. Uh, he treated them as commoners. And it's interesting, too, you said he was the youngest of four sons. Does that not really explain why he was kind of treated as the most senior, even though he was the youngest? Well, the, 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 there was, of course, a precedence that depended on um, which son of which wife that you were. Um, and the older sons um, went off to work. He, he, he uh, more by luck than any for, for any particularly systematic reason, became rather, rather better educated than his brothers and sisters. He went to high school and then later to university. In fact, he attended two universities. Um, uh, and um, uh, 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 that was partly a consequence of, of his, his mother's ambitions rather than his father because his father died when he was still quite young. Okay. Um, you, obviously, you talk about he becomes a lawyer. Walter Sisulu, as you write in the book, who's a big, I guess, a property owner and a broker, quite prosperous, really helps Mandela quite a bit in, on his path. Would that be fair to say? That, that is correct. I mean, Mandela, Mandela wanted to become a lawyer. There were, there were only uh, really a couple of dozen or so uh, black South African lawyers at that time. Um, and, and Walter Sisulu, who... who um, dealt in real estate. There was still a very limited market in urban land. Black people could buy and sell land in, in a couple of neighborhoods around Johannesburg. And, and, and Walter Sisulu um, was involved in such transactions. And he found Mandela a, a position in a law firm which handled the real estate that Walter Sisulu was involved in. It's interesting. You talk about a story how he, a white typist is being dictated to by Mandela Someone comes in the room, and the white typist then says to him, "Go out and buy some shampoo or something." That you know he couldn't have been seen to be the equal of a white person. Yes, I mean there was that kind of thing that he 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 he, he experienced, and what, what of course made his position quite different from many black South Africans is that right from the beginning, 
um, he, 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 he felt affronted by this sort of behavior, but he also didn't really um, uh, uh, conform with the expectations of, the, for example, the White Secretary who asked him to go and get her some shampoo, um, in, in the sense that, you know, he, he'd, he'd grown up in a rural setting uh, as a member of, if you like, the ruling group. He'd gone to an elite high school. The little bit of um, knowledge that he had of white South Africans was not a knowledge that um, was derived from him being in a subordinate position to them. So he was much more self-confident in his reactions to that kind of situation than many black South Africans of his generation would have been. When does he meet uh, Oliver Tambo, uh, Professor Love? Um, that would have been in the early 1940s. Um, I mean, they, 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 they became friends in about 41, 42. Both of them, through Sisulu, had been brought into the Youth League, um, and um, which was the youth wing. It had just been started up of the African National Congress. They were both founder members together with Sisulu. But it was Sisulu that encouraged Mandela to start attending ANC meetings. And, and 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 they became acquaintances and then subsequently closer friends right, yeah. uh, during the 1940s. Uh, Oliver Tambo was at that stage a school teacher. He too then started serving articles to become a lawyer in the South African legal system. Right. So they have both of them became attorneys rather than barristers. Okay. So they have their their law firm together, a prominent black law firm. He's, they they tried to uh, remove Mandela. The white government doesn't. 1954, and actually has some Africana support from various lawyers, and also from the National Party lawyers, who actually support Mandela staying as a lawyer. Yes, well, this is quite an interesting moment, because um, Mandela had, by that stage, put himself at the front of a massive campaign of passive resistance that the ANC organized. And, 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 and the authorities argued that it was inappropriate for a lawyer uh, to be involved in a campaign of civil disobedience, disobeying law, and tried to get the, the Transvaal Bar, um, the, the organization, that, that the professional association, as it were, for, for lawyers, to exclude him so that he wouldn't be able to practice. But, you know, the sort of professional integrity of, of, of the top lawyers in Johannesburg actually trumped for once, if you like, any sense of, uh, you know, community loyalty or ethnicity and so forth. And yes, Mandela was indeed uh, defended by some of his Afrikaans-speaking colleagues, even though they were people that might have disapproved of, of his political associations and, and, and commitments. Now, if we could just talk about... Uh, and Mandela didn't forget that sort of thing. Um, uh, and, you know, Mandela was very, very conscious of courtesies wherever they came from. He usually, for example, had a fairly affable relationship with certain magistrates and judges. Um, and, and, I mean, sometimes he encountered hostility from them, but sometimes he encountered courtesy and consideration. Uh, and that made a quite a deep impression upon him at that time. Now, one of the things you write, Professor, is that the armed struggle that Mandela, uh, obviously trying to avoid casualties, but the struggle starts earlier than what Mandela wrote in his 1994 book, Walk to Freedom, a long march to freedom. Could you talk about when the armed struggle began? And yes. Um, I, I mean, the, the way that Mandela presents the story in his own autobiography, um, he, he suggests that really this was a kind of last resort thing that, that the ANC... Um, the ANC held out to the government the possibility of negotiations, and it was only after the government had suppressed a, a, a strike um, uh, at the time when South Africa declared itself to be a republic and, 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 and severed its connection uh, with, with the United, its constitutional connection with the United Kingdom. That was in May. 
one. Uh, it was only at that juncture that the ANC began planning, as it were, to set up an armed wing. This was 18 months or so, or, well, 13 months or so uh, after the Shafal massacre. Well, the reality was that, that in fact, um, serious planning of, a, of, of an armed movement had begun about a year previously, but not within the ANC, but rather within the, one of the ANC's most important allies, the uh, clandestine and very secretive uh, South African Communist Party. Uh, and Mandela was involved in these meetings, and it seems to be quite likely that for a brief period, he actually belonged to the Communist Party. And the Communist Party decided um, well before the end of 1960 uh, to set up a violent movement. Uh, and Mandela was brought in. And then Mandela started talking to his ANC colleagues and fellow leaders to try and bring the ANC into the movement. So the gestation, the evolution of the armed struggle um, developed a little bit earlier. The other thing was, in fact, Mandela and Sisulu were talking about the possibility of armed struggle right the way through the 1950s. As Sisulu went on a visit sponsored by some uh, communist front organization uh, to China, and uh, this was in 1953, and he actually discussed the possibility of the Chinese supporting an armed struggle with Mao Zedong, but Mao Zedong told him that really that was um, rather too ambitious at that stage, and he would think about it, but probably not. Interesting, because as you know, Mao supported quite a few armed struggles, of course, that was a big tenet of his rule. But not at that stage, no. yes, and, and Mao knew nothing really about Southern Africa. In fact, the Chinese would give a certain amount of help to the armed struggle in South Africa, but they wouldn't help the ANC. By that stage, the Sino-Soviet split uh, was reflected in local political affiliations. The I ANC see. got most of its support from Eastern Bloc countries and the Soviet Union. The Chinese supported the Pan-Africanists. I wanted to get to the, the Ravona trial that obviously Mandela's put on trial and sentenced to, to jail. Before I, I get to that, I just want to ask you, um, when, when Mandela is, is captured, well, first of all, as far as the armed struggle, he was careful not to have people killed, right? He wanted more sabotage and, than, than any kind of deaths. Is, is that correct? Yes, I, I, mean, I, 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 I don't think Mandela was a, a, a person who believed that uh, physical violence redeemed people in any kind of way. I mean, he, 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 he wasn't looking forward to a bloodbath or anything like that. Uh, and and he, I, I, I think that um, he was internally, I think, quite divided because I, I think in, in some senses the, the, sort of the, the heroism of an armed revolution appealed to him. Uh, on the other hand, I, I, the lawyer in him and the, the, the uh, you know the the the, the, the aristocratic uh, sort of ruler uh, uh, genealogy um, that, 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 that helped to shape his childhood um, compelled him to have a fairly sort of strong preference for order and, and security. So so you know. Um, the, the idea of a diplomatic negotiated resolution in which violence would simply be used as a source of leverage was probably um, the, 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 the most important consideration in influencing uh, his behavior as a guerrilla leader. Actually, when he went to Algeria, he visited Algeria in 1962, and the Algerian said, look, um, armed struggle can only be part of your struggle. You're facing a very tough opponent, just as we did. And at the end of the day, we don't win a military victory. We just use soldiers to make our point at the negotiation table. Okay. Um, well, as you write, Mandela is captured, as we all know. He's put on trial. Um, when we had the, um, the chief of staff to President de Klerk on, he mentioned, obviously, that the fight against communism. That's what drew the United States to 
tacitly and, and, and surreptitiously and also outwardly support South Africa, there have been allegations that either the National Security Agency or the CIA assisted in the capture of Mandela. Do you have any feelings on that? Uh, the evidence isn't very strong. <laughs> in any case, the um, security um, was very weak. Um, uh, they, 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 the South Africans didn't need uh, the, the help of the CIA to locate where Mandela was. Okay. Um, uh, the, 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 the Mandela himself was extremely indiscreet. I mean, he arrived back and, and, and left a sort of trail of indiscretion wherever he went. Um, he even actually wore the military fatigues that had been issued during his training in, 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 in uh, Ethiopia. But he went to several meetings at, uh, uh, which were attended by at least a few police informers uh, and told people what he'd been doing. Now, I, I, I think that the, that the police... Uh, had several sources of information that enabled them to locate him uh, as he was driving between Durban and Johannesburg. Okay, so he's arrested. He's put on this trial. It's 1961, right? Right. The, the Ravonia trial is what it's called? Uh, he was actually put on trial in 1962, 62. yes. Um, it was after he'd returned from a Pan-African trip. Okay, so, and he, he gives a four-hour summation where he says, I fought against black domination and I fought against white domination. A very eloquent speech. Picasso donates to yep. his defense fund. The sculptor Henry Moore. I mean, it really is a is a celebrated trial. Now, obviously, he's still sentenced to a, a lifetime in jail. Right after that. Well, what happens is more complicated. The, he, he, he makes uh, he, he appears in two trials because the first trial is he's put on trial by himself uh, for leaving the country illegally and for being involved in an illegal strike and so forth. At this stage, the police haven't got enough information about his guerrilla activities, um, and he's, he's 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 sentenced to quite a lengthy prison term. And he makes a very impassioned speech at, at that trial, which is, if you like, the first draft of the speech that he subsequently makes at the so-called Ravonia trial. What happens is that he goes to prison. And while he's in prison, uh, the police then um, learn about the um, location of the uh, headquarters of the armed movement and gone to Wesiswe, which he had helped to found. And they, 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 they um, raid the um, headquarters uh, in the middle of, 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 of 1963, one year after Mandela's trial. And they, they capture most of the other leaders there, and they also unearth a treasure trove of documentation, which Mandela had actually asked them to burn, including Mandela's diary that he'd kept while he was overseas, and a whole range of other things that incriminated him and implicated him in, 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 the, mil in the military activities of Mkontuwes, his way. And so he's pulled out of jail and put on trial again, along with the other Mkontuwes, his way leaders and Communist Party leaders. And he then reprises his speech, but elaborates it, and is even more eloquent and powerful than before. Okay. Now, um, obviously, he's sentenced to jail. He's later, he's, he's released in 1990. A lot of his jail sentence is spent in Robben Island off the coast of Cape Town. I've been to Cape Town, but yes. I haven't been to Robben Island. But obviously, we, his eyes are damaged. It was work he's forced to do without wearing sunglasses. It's a, it's a rough period. He does become friends with some of the prison guards, but and his treatment obviously gradually does improve. If I could just get to the point where the clerk makes a decision now to release him. This is when I was in South Africa. I was there in 91. He's obviously released in 1990. Yep. Um, the tension between them 
is strong. The clerk wants to basically maintain some sort of white control with like almost like a super veto power. And Mandela obviously insists upon one man, one vote. Obviously, a big tension, too, is the funding that um, is given to the Zulus, the uh, Inkathas, which is a rival yep. to uh, Mandela. And Chief Butalezi is, I believe, still head of the Zulus today. Could you discuss how much you think the clerk knew and the surreptitious government funding and the problems that they were stirring up to try to create problems between Mandela and the Zulus and the fighting? Yep. Uh, my- Mandela believed that the, the, the top politicians, including the clerk, were, were, were sponsoring various uh, violent organizations active in black communities attacking ANC people. And he also believed that the government was channeling arms and funding to Inkata, the uh, Zulu nationalist movement or the Zulu regionalist movement, which had emerged as a rival to the ANC um, in, in, in the Natal, KwaZulu-Natal region. Um, and which had a certain amount of support in other parts of South Africa as well. Um, the uh, evidence um, that, um, uh, that, that that has emerged is ambiguous. Uh, um, I, I, I think the government probably could have done more to rein in certain rogue parts of the security apparatus who were certainly sponsoring um, uh, agent provocateur typed armed violence and attacks on the ANC and so on. Um, I don't think that these were actions that were commissioned at the top level by people like de Klerk. Um, and I think Mandela's um, uh, belief, a very firm belief, uh, that, that, that de, de Klerk was trying surreptitiously to destroy the ANC well, was probably unfounded. Um, that said, there were tensions between the two men which, which had nothing to do with those sorts of things. I, I think Mandela well, rather understandably resented the perception, the external perception that both men deserved, as it were, equal credit for South African peacemaking. Uh, and, and he found uh, it difficult in any case to develop a kind of warm personal rapport with de Klerk. De, de Klerk was a much more reserved personality than some of the people that he made friends with uh, across political lines. Um, and I think de Klerk also did indeed uh, see that uh, the, the, the ideal solution as being a kind of solution in which there would be certain guarantees built into a constitutional settlement which would keep um, the white South Africans uh, and, and the national party that he led uh, in government for a much longer time. Um, what, I mean, what, basically what, these, what they negotiated was a kind of transitional arrangement in which um, a government would have a coalition structure in which all parties winning uh, above a certain proportion of the vote, I think it was 4%, 5%, would have a presence in government. And what de Klerk wanted was that for that kind of arrangement to be permanent rather than just transitional. Uh, de Klerk also believed that it might be possible to stitch together a kind of coalition of political parties that might prevail against the ANC in an election. And he did indeed seek an alliance with the Inkata in, in Zulu movement. And that helped to fuel Mandela's suspicions of him. So there were very deep tensions between the two men. It's funny because um, Mandela is such a really comes across as a very classy person who almost bears no ill will to anyone. He has tea with the person, the widow of the person who basically started the apartheid movement, right? He, I forget that town where he flew to and had tea with her. So he did everything he could to have reconciliation. But I guess, as you said, there was some resentment towards the clerk, just in the feeling of that they weren't equally, they both, were, they both were not equally responsible for the peace which ensued. I guess that's fair to say. 
in Mandela. I, I think, you know, de Klerk sometimes doesn't get sufficient credit for the considerable courage that prompted him in the first place um, to make that big step of, of, of releasing Mandela, of um, making all the organizations that have been banned legal. Um, and, and he did it, you know, on the basis of consultations with a relatively small group of people. It wasn't an inevitable event. And um, it was by no means the case that a, in, in February 1990 that the, the government was on its knees or, or, the, or that the uh, ANC was, you know, militarily more, becoming more formidable or anything like that. Uh, I mean, there was a quite astute set of calculations that informed uh, de Klerk's actions, but I, I think he also had considerable courage. What do you... Um, he was making a gamble, um, and that, that took nerve. The other thing is, is it, it needed a, a political leader who was willing to take risks, and he did take risks. He took risks of his own constituency. So, so I, I think uh, he, he did demonstrate qualities of leadership which, which aren't sufficiently understood or appreciated. But... Um, that said, I mean, on the whole, I think the ANC's reception of, of their opponents was, was, was generous and accommodating. And Mandela, on the whole, could be and was um, usually fairly gracious with de Klerk. Yes, and, and uh, Ambassador Stewart talks about how Mandela called him and wished him a happy birthday. And I believe he went to uh, de Klerk's birthday party at the Mount Nelson Hotel years later, so they obviously ended well. But just to getting back to... Uh, they, 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 I mean, Mandela is not one to, 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 to um, persist well, in, in, in a bad relationship. Getting to Mandela's presidency from where he takes president, 94 to 98, there are basically people who say that, well, a very decent person, Mandela was not a particularly strong, hands-on president, and he sort of laid the groundwork for the corruption that obviously existed under President Zuma and the problems that exist in South Africa today. Even President Thabo Mbeke, who took over after him, had a ridiculous notion that HIV did not cause AIDS. And I know that Mandela tried to promote the AIDS movement, but do you think Mandela could have done more to have a better ANC, a better leadership in the ANC that would have maybe turned out better for South Africa today? Um, I, 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 he, he tended to delegate a lot of, sort of day-to-day matters, particularly with respect to internal affairs, to, to, to his deputy presidents, and in particular to Thabo Mbeki, who, who was the ANC deputy. There were two deputy presidents. De Klerk was his other deputy president. Um, and I mean, Mandela did the kind of big picture things, but he, he didn't really interest himself in the nitty-gritty of, of detail and policy. Uh, I think one has to remember he was a fairly elderly man by that stage. I mean, this was in the 1990s. He was in his 70s. Um, uh, I, I, his administration, and he, he, he only served one term. He recognized his own limitations and said he didn't want to serve a second term. His administration did, did, did quite a lot of good things. I mean, they, 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 they attempted quite seriously to, to address certain areas of, of poverty alleviation, to reorganize the health care system so it was more oriented to primary health care. Indeed, some of the organizational foundations that enabled South Africa eventually to cope rather effectively with HIV AIDS were, were instituted during Mandela's presidency. So I think he deserves more credit than he sometimes gets. Um, but it's mainly credit that belongs to his ministers and, and, and that belongs to Mbeki. He was very good at the sort of gestural things that are important in leadership at that level in, for example, um, trying to bring the country together um, and, and trying to heal the wounds of the past. Uh, for example, um, uh, those generous gestures to uh, 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 former Afrikaner nationalist politicians 
Christmas, uh, the meeting with Betsy for food, um, his appearance at an, imp at an important World Cup rugby final in which the South Africans won, uh, those sorts of things which were directed very much why South Africans were really rather successful in establishing his credentials, his legitimacy, his moral authority amongst white South Africans as well as black South Africans. Another side of that story was his efforts to, to, uh, to, to, to bring together and to incorporate the sort of traditional rural leadership um, amongst black South Africans, which had very much lined itself up with the regime before. Um, it is true that he um, was tolerant of politicians who were corrupt. Um, he, he had other priorities at that stage. Um, and there's an untold story, in fact, about... Mandela and money, which needs to be unpacked because um, he did accept presents. They weren't personal presents for him, but they were presents for his movement, often from rather doubtful people. Uh, there was a family fund because he felt very guilty about the way that his family had suffered during his incarceration, uh, during his imprisonment. Uh, and so businessmen were allowed to make donations to a special foundation that looked after his family. So he did, if you like, put in place a kind of routine of, of gift-making for political purposes, which um, certainly helped to encourage some of the corruption that exists Pro today. Professor, um, sorry, if I could just interrupt, did he feel guilty about Winnie Mandela, who, as you know, her bodyguards basically, basically killed a child in her apartment, and or, sorry, in her house, and Winnie Mandela was basically, they had to, Mandela had to divorce her. He had, she had stuck by him for many years when he was in jail. Did he feel bad about her, too, in a way? I think his feelings about Winnie were always going to be very complex. Um, he, he was very reluctant to believe the bad things that had been told about her behavior and about the behavior of her bodyguards um, and, and, and defended her and tried to protect her and, uh, and actually gave her a position in his government that he had to dismiss her in the end because she performed so badly in it. Um, the, 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 the separation was heartbreaking for him and it was a separation which occurred not actually because of um, uh, the, 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 her previous track record of, of political violence or things like that, but because she was openly and uh, blatantly uh, unfaithful to him. She, I mean, she had various boyfriends and man friends, which in itself was not necessarily um, so, 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 so inexplicable. After all, she'd lived a fairly lonely life without him for 40 years. Um, she'd obviously developed other emotional attachments. But, but, but it was reported, uh, and, and, and she did it in a way that was very unsubtle. Uh, and, he, and, and, and she actually humiliated him in public, and, and, and the marriage broke down on that basis. May I ask you, if Mandela had not existed, if he had not been on the scene, um, what, how do you think things would have turned out differently? Do you think that, that, that things would have, do you think another leader would have emerged, or was, this, was Mandela just a very unique um, leader at a very... I, I think Man Mandela had very considerable gifts of leadership. I, I think he was quite extraordinarily uh, powerful in the way that he could project different kinds of personalities to different sorts of constituencies. He, he was great, you know, he loved dressing up. And if you look at the way that Mandela dressed, you get clues about his leadership because he dressed in different ways for different people on different occasions. He was extraordinarily imaginative. I, I don't think that there were many people around at that time who could have invested so much glamour and so much legitimacy in what was a political settlement that involved some fairly difficult bargaining. Um, black South Africans expected much more than they got. 
white South Africans conceded much more than they might have imagined they would have to. Do you see what I mean? Yes. It was a political settlement that was quite, really would have been very difficult to sell. Um, and Mandela invested it with a kind of clamor and, and, uh, and, and made it seem reassuring and made it seem an achievement in a way that very few other leaders could have done. May I just ask you, maybe this is a little bit off the topic, but just in regards to Chief Budelezi and the Zulus, why did they cooperate with the government? What, what was the, uh, what, what bound to them? Was it just... Oh, well, for, for several reasons. I mean, first of all, um, the, the, the chiefs of the so-called ethnic homelands had themselves very considerable powers that were the consequence of these powers being delegated to them by government within their fiefdoms. They, they were autocrats. Um, and um, therefore, there was a kind of tacit alliance, if you like, uh, between the chieftaincy and the government that had started developing in the 1950s. Um, uh, Chief, Chief Butelese was, was, was politically, if you like, an ambiguous figure because his ambitions for Encarta was to turn it into more than just a homeland movement, to make it a national organization. I see. And so whilst maintaining a cooperative relationship with the government in certain ways, he also cast himself as an anti-apartheid leader, uh, but he projected himself as a kind of safe competitor to the ANC. Uh, and so when, when the government started looking around for, for possible allies who might have, if you like, uh, clout and, and credibility uh, amongst black South Africans, Inkata was a fairly obvious candidate. Uh, public opinion polling um, in, in, in the uh, 1970s and 1980s, and it was by that stage quite a sophisticated science in South Africa, public opinion polling suggested that Inkata could possibly win the support of a rather larger share of the black South African population than simply those that spoke Zulu. At certain times, it suggests it might get sort of 20% support, that kind of thing. Well, when you look at um, South Africa today, obviously Zuma has just left, and, and the person that Mandela really wanted to be president, I think, from the beginning, Cyril Ramposa, is now recently the president of South Africa. But Zuma, before he left, I guess they proposed basically seizing the whites' land in South Africa, something that Trump obviously mentioned in a tweet a while back. Um, and they were going to sort, sort of do what Mugabe did in Zimbabwe. I mean, I assume Mandela would be appalled with that if he were alive. Yes. Um, in fact, so, so we saw Ramaphosa, and Ramaphosa has, 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 has tried to reassure people. I mean, the, the, the um, ANC is seeking, um, and, and there will soon be, a, a constitutional change. Uh, though, in fact, what they're proposing to do is already possible under the Constitution. Basically, what they're arguing is that there should be certain, on, under certain conditions and under certain grounds, it should be possible for the state to take over land without compensating the owners. But the conditions would be, first of all, that it would have to be in the public interest, and secondly, it would have to be land which uh, was not being used properly. Um, so, so what is being proposed is actually much more legalistic and probably much more restricted um, and, and, and limited and non-threatening kind of expropriation than what happened in, in, in Zimbabwe uh, in the early 2000s. That said, white South Africans are understandably alarmed and they're also worried that in any case um, the AC is sending out a green light, as it were, to its followers and to its supporters. Uh, and there are already, uh, if you like, unilateral illegal land occupations in different parts of the country, which the police are doing nothing about. Um, and, and occupations which are, moreover, being encouraged by local politicians. So it's a complex situation. There's no question that there has to be some kind of land reform in South Africa. 
it's always been on the agenda, but it, has, it hasn't been implemented with, with any great effect or force. Partly because actually the business of doing land reform is very expensive. It's really quite difficult if you can do it properly. Just uh, one, one question about the South African, the former South African apartheid regime. Have you heard of uh, Eugene de Kock and his book, Assassin, Assassin for the State? Yes, and usually de Kock was, 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 was one of the notorious um, secret policemen, as it were, who, who um, worked in, in a dirty trick section, carrying out targeted assassinations and, and, and torturing detainees and so on. Right, I, I, I tried to reach him to get him on the program, and he's, he's sort of gone into hiding because he was um, such a controversial figure after his book came out, but there were allegations that he was involved in the Olaf Palme assassination in Sweden, uh, Prime Minister Palma, that he uh, obviously killed something like 100 people, and he basically implies that the higher-ups did know what was going on. He said that when Mandela was released, I think things accelerated on his part. He actually got more into the dirty tricks, that things actually, he was actually more in business after Mandela was released than actually before. Uh, one of the uh, hideous uh, ironies of South Africa's uh, political settlement was that um, the, 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 the violence became uh, accentuated. It was, was actually the, 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 the politics was at its most bloody in the last four years between 1990 and 1994. In, a, in other words, during the negotiations, if anything, uh, the violence heated up. And that was partly because different groups... Uh, including renegade security police and dirty tricks people like Eugene de Kock, were staking out their own particular souls. Uh, but also there was, a, there was a, a struggle, if you like, for sort of territorial control amongst certain groups in anticipation that there would be eventually elections and all the rest of it. Um, uh, so, 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 you know, if, if we think of the number of people who died for political reasons, who were killed by police or killed in the armed struggle or, or, or executed in prison or whatever it might be, if we, look, or, or, or if, we, if we look at the sort of, you know, politically motivated deaths as it were, that occurred in South Africa between 1960 and 1995, we're talking roughly about 35,000 people. Of those 35,000 people, about 12,000 died between 1990 and 1994. Interesting. Well, first of all, as, as we sum up and obviously come towards the end of our program, and as we sum up Mandela's legacy, do we just say he's one of the great figures of the 20th century, that he helped really sp- spread a better world, and he's right up there with Martin Luther King and Gandhi and, and some of the greats of the 20th century? I, I think he was a great figure. I, 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 he certainly uh, has represented, if you like, a role model uh, for, for, for people across the African continent who have been looking for inspirational kinds of leadership. Um, and I, I, I think, uh, whereas South Africa today is still a deeply damaged country, um, the, the extent to which on a day-to-day, sort of everyday, ordinary basis, people live together, uh, despite their different histories, despite the histories of conflict between them, the extent to which South Africa has become a calmer society, and I think it has. Uh, uh, he, he deserves much of the credit for that. Right. So he's someone in the end who I assume we we can admire as a. Yeah. Uh, as, as, there are not uh, too I many. Mean, there, are, there are many problems still. I mean, Mand- during Mandela's regime, not enough was done to address poverty, and uh, and if anything, actually inequalities increased. Uh, but those problems were beyond the scope of a single individual to really tackle. Right, right. I guess you could say that under the circumstances, he did the best he could at the time that he that he had. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, he, he was he was he was honest and brave and talented. I just want to ask about um, when we spoke um, 
off the air or, uh, via email, you said you're working on a book on a South African Communist Party. Is that, will that be coming out anytime soon? It'll be coming out very uh, well. I hope next year um, because it's finished. Uh, it, it's 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 an extraordinary story. It's a hundred years um, that there have been communists in South Africa. They were practically communists before the formation of, 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 of the Communist Party proper, because uh, there were people that thought of themselves as communists, as Bolsheviks, going right right going right back to the beginning of the First World War. Uh, and there are still communists, of course, in South Africa today. In fact, the party is, in terms of membership, quite a substantial force. It has about a quarter of a million followers. Uh, and it's still very much present in, in, in government. Um, quite what communism means and, and what its implications are uh, and what its effect is, all these things have changed over the years. But, but I would argue that um, over the course of South African history, um, South, the, the, the Communist Party in South Africa has actually made quite a deep impression. Uh, and in particular, its alliance with the ANC, which was sporadic off and on, but which began in the 1920s, um, helped to shape the larger national movement in all, in all sorts of ways, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And that was jo Joe Slovo was a big part of that, right? Joe Slovo is certainly part of that story, yes. Uh, he, he, he starts really becoming important in, in, in the 1950s. Um, uh, and arguably, as, uh, as, we've been, as we've been discussing, Mandela is part of that story as well, as is indeed Walter Sisulu, who belonged to the party from 1955. Uh, in fact, if you look at the party's leadership, it's almost like a roll call of, of some of the top political leadership in the, in the anti-apartheid opposition uh, through the 50s and the 60s. Okay. Well, Professor, um, we will look for your book. On, do you know? Do you have a title for your book? Is it, is it called yet? Or the Communist Party book? Um, uh, uh, I, I, I'm thinking of calling it. Uh, 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 well, the word "century" is going to come into it because there is a century. Um, but, 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 I'm, I, 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 but I'm not quite sure um, what else is going to be in the title. But it's going to be the Communist Party in South Africa from 1917 through to 2018. Okay. Well, uh, I'll. Look I need a catchier title than that. <laughs> Well, we'll look forward to that coming out. And um, so, Professor Lodge at the University of Limerick, thank you so much for coming on the program today. We appreciate your time. It's been a real pleasure being with you. And you're listening to Intelligent Talk, intelligenttalk.com. Thanks very much, and good day. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and 